Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking with the one and only Andy May. Hey guys, Mark here for a quick second, jumping in. This is a Tony episode, but uh, I gotta apologize to all of you because we made a mistake last week. Last week on the podcast, I mentioned that we had this sweet new kind of promotion over on the Meat Eater store where with every sale of the Tethered Elite Phantom Saddle, we were going to give a $100 first light discount or gift card. Sorry. It was a sweet deal. I was very excited about it. Uh, But we had a little issue on the back end and that sale is not ready to launch yet. Now, I have it on good authority that we will be able to offer that at some point soon-ish. I don't want to make any promises, but here's the deal. I'm sorry I told you that was available. It is not available right now. Sorry for any of you guys that went there. Check it out. As soon as I can confirm that this is a real thing again, I will let you know. Thank you for your understanding and for your patience. And now I will let you get back to Tony's podcast. Thanks. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You've probably figured out this is not the voice of Mark Kenyon. Normally, he's off doing something really odd, often with Spencer, who is not coincidentally really odd. But let's be honest, this week, Mark is on another vacation, fly fishing some beautiful stream in Idaho or somewhere out west so that he can post, I don't know, 77 more pictures of big trout on his Instagram and make us all kind of secretly hate him just a little bit more. Now today, since Mark's off having fun slinging flies around, 
I'm kicking off a Rabbits with Antlers month where we dumb down bucks and give you the confidence to kill mature deer no matter where you hunt. And there's no one better to talk to about this than Michigander Andy May, who might just be the best damn whitetail hunter in the country. Now, I've interviewed Andy quite a few times, but I think this was my favorite conversation with him. So Andy talks about several of the big bucks he's killed and what those deer taught him, but he also breaks down how little time he really has to hunt and what that means for his hunting strategies. And there's a lot of takeaways from this episode. You know, one is that being a strategy generalist is often better than being a specialist. It's, as long as you're someone who's always willing to learn, that's going to take you so far. Uh, the other takeaway from this that's super important, whether you hunt public land or private land, great whitetail state, not so great whitetail state, whatever, is learning how to think differently about being a deer hunter. Think differently than your competition as opposed to just trying to outwork them. That's maybe the the you know, kind of the undercurrent of this whole episode, and it's so good. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Andy May, welcome uh, back to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the, the people listening to this don't know, but we recorded a banger podcast yesterday and I screwed up the audio. And so we're redoing it today. And I, I'm, I'm going to blame Clay Newcomb, but for like 20% of that mistake, because he made me do the Bear Grease podcast and I switched my settings and I never do it. And uh, so anyway, I, I thank you for coming back for <laughs> round two today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I had no problem, man. Hey, it stuff happens right so yeah well uh, I, and i'm an idiot so that <laughs> yesterday i before we get into the deer thing i want to explain my my day yesterday just quickly so we did this podcast and as soon as as soon as we wrapped up i went to upload the files for our for our editor and i saw that i had screwed that up and hadn't switched that one setting and i hate that i hate wasting your time i just i felt so dumb i'm like whatever what are you going to do at least it at least it was a buddy you know it wasn't like somebody that i didn't really know Mm -hmm. And I left after that, after figuring that out, I took my dogs out to the park to train them. And at the end of the training session, I always throw this Frisbee just to wear them out. And I threw the Frisbee and my little pup, she's a 50 pounder and she's a burner. I mean, she's so fast. And I did one of those throws on a soccer field and it's that Frisbee's going, going, going. And I'm watching her. And it was like watching a, a receiver, you know, looking at the ball, not paying attention to the corner coming in hot. And she ran right into this post. Uh, like a, this, the corner post of a soccer goal, just, you know, smoked it. I was like, holy shit. Now I'm going to the emergency vet. She got up, ran and got the Frisbee, came back. Oh man. Didn't show. I mean, I was like, when I saw it happen, I was like, oh God. So I'm like, okay, well there's two. And then I picked up my little girls, came home and I had a, I had a time reserved for them to swim at the Y. So I was going to go lift and they were going to swim and we're going to the Y and this is like a five minute drive, right? We get to this, the one stoplight we have to stop at. And I see our old neighbor pull in front of us. I said, oh, the, you know, guys, there's Tegan's dad. And so like, we're all looking straight ahead. And as we watch him like drive the road ahead of us, this cop turns on his cherries and whips a Yui. And I was like, gosh, I wonder if they're pulling him over. And so we go up there and there's a doe in the ditch of this guy's yard, back broken scrambling just got it hit and so like we're we're going by slow because everybody's slowing down and that cop walks up there and pulls out his service pistol like 20 feet from my truck and shoots that doe both girls are just bawling oh my gosh yeah <laughs> it was just i was like i don't i i didn't feel like i belonged on earth yesterday so i think today's going to be better uh you're you're the first guest on this rabbits with antlers month 
where we're just like, you know, we did, we did a science month a couple months ago and I, I just want to talk to you and some other just whitetail killers and kind of, again, try to demystify whitetails. I want to talk about, you know, how we kind of give them too much credit and how you think about them and how you're thinking about them has evolved over, you know, your hunting career and, you know, public land, private land, all that stuff. But first, before we get into that, can you just tell the audience what it's like to be sort of a famous hunter who only hunts all the time and doesn't have a real job? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't know what that's like. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I think, I think I can relate well to, um, the average hunter out there in regards to, you know, I, I don't get paid for this. This isn't my living. Um, I just hunt, I just love to hunt and, uh, that's all it is for me. And, and frankly, kind of all I really care for it to be, um, you know, limited time family, man. Um, I work, uh, I work, uh, a career in a, a school district, uh, working with special education. I'm an occupational therapist. So that's my full-time job. Um, you know, so I'm on a school schedule and then I have a second job that I work kind of to make ends meet. And I do the same type of work, but I do it with, um, adults with disabilities. So I kind of do that on the side and that one is a little more flexible with my time. There's a certain caseload that I have to manage. And I can kind of do it, you know, kind of piece it in, you know, when it fits with my schedule. So, uh, aside from that, um, you know, I have a, uh, a daughter that is, you know, very much involved with, with sports and stuff. And most of the listeners have, have heard this about me, but, uh, you know, I, 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 that is like just my number one priority. I spend a lot of time getting her places. She's in a lot of travel sports, school sports. So my fall is really booked up with a lot of that. But in between, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're hunters and, um, we need to, we need to also, you know, fuel ourselves and, and kind of go after that passion a little bit. So it's, it's a balance, but, um, I think I, I'm a, a good guy to relate to most, probably most of our listeners out there that are working hard at their job, um, trying to be good husbands, trying to be good fathers and still trying to find time to get their hunting in and be effective. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a, you know, professional hunter or do this full time to, to have some level of success. So that's, yeah. that's pretty much the rundown there. I think it, I think it's an important lesson there because I think it's very easy to see somebody like you and, you know, like, like if the listeners follow you on social media, they'll see your fall distilled down to, you know, five kill photos of giant critters and, you know, some time out in the field and just assume that's just what you're doing the whole time. But I know, you know, you and I talk quite a bit and I know you, your time in the fall is super limited. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, a lot of times when we talk, you're like, oh, I just, I just did a quick scouting session here, or I'm running into here or doing something. And I think the lesson is, is so valuable because you're, you figured out, especially with your daughter's schedule. And, you know, I'm going through that with my twin 10 year olds, you know, it's, freaking every activity, gymnastics and basketball and softball and what, whatever. And you, you realize like, okay, that's priority. Number one, I don't care how much you love deer, they're priority number two or three or whatever they're down the list, mm -hmm. but you still make time to, to do those things, but you piece it out and you're like very targeted. And I know that that's part of what I want to talk to you today. I know you've talked to the, uh, talked about that a whole bunch, but 
you are really efficient. <laughs> like you, you might be the most efficient hunter out there. And it's because you're just managing a full life, but still have that desire to get in some extra States and, and get as much done, you know, on, on standard in your saddle or whatever as you can. But it's like, you know, you're talking, I, I just ballpark it for me on average. Like how many days a year are you actually hunting now? Yeah, it varies. Um, this, this past year I whitetail hunted, um, like actual, like in a tree are, are actively hunting 11 days. Um, you know, I spent a few days out West. Um, I went out there, um, mule deer hunting. I had four days and then I went on a, a really, uh, disaster of an elk hunt. Um, I was there five days and only got one day of hunting because our vehicle broke down and I spent four days trying to, <laughs> yeah. trying to get, trying to get that fixed up so I could get back to the airport. So, um, you know, I, I had a few more days there, uh, but, but 11 is, is very low for me. Um, I would say, you know, during that COVID year was probably the most I've hunted since before children. And I was, I was probably around 30, you know, so I, I say I kind of fluctuate somewhere in that um, 15 to 30 day range of actual hunting. But, um, you know, some of that is by choice too. Um, you know, I could hunt a little more than that. I couldn't hunt much more than that, but I could hunt more. But what I've kind of chosen to do or kind of evolved into doing is just spending way more time scouting than I do actually hunting. And, um, it, it has translated into more success with less time in the field of actually hunting. Um, so I, I guess like it, it has evolved more into like, um, a series or a schedule of information gathering and trying to look for specific things and then moving in when the time is right, when the situation was right, when the deer, you know, is located and the conditions and everything line up. Um, so my, my hunts are much more targeted. So I scout year round. Um, I, I spend a big portion of it scouting, um, just when the season ends, kind of, I do a little bit when there's still snow and then I kind of back off, I let that melt. And then I do quite a bit of postseason scouting. Um, and then that kind of slows down for a while. And then I pick it up again, right around now, kind of in that mid to late summertime leading right up into the season. I kind of ramp it up yep. right before the opener. And then once season starts to me, I don't really switch gears. I still am scouting. I'm constantly searching for a buck to chase. I'm constantly trying to get on hot sign, um, find new areas, find new bucks to go after. And um, I do more of that in-season scouting during the season than actual hunting. But what that's done, it's made my actual hunts uh, um, much, like you said, much more targeted, much more um, high percentage. And I've just, be, I've just gotten better at managing that type of, of schedule of scratching and clawing for time to scout and get out there. Um, often I'm going before work, glassing. Um, I'm a lunch hour going and, and, and making a loop and looking for some, you know, fresh sign in an area on a swamp edge, or I'm checking trail cameras. I'm walking a, a food source edge and looking for big tracks, just anything to get me started down a path of another mature deer, because that's been the biggest challenge around home here where I hunt in kind of Southern Michigan and Northern Ohio is just finding a deer to target one that, yep. one that I want to spend time doing. And then when I do find that information, then it's go time. Then it's time to put time in the tree or make that calculated move. But 
I don't really go and just hunt anymore. I, I spend time gathering information and then hunt at very specific times when I feel like I got the information I need. Yeah. Well, and it, your point there about, you know, slipping out during lunch hour or, you know, before work, after work, whatever that's, you know, and I, I know you work out a lot. We talked about this the last time, so we don't need to get into it, but I always feel, you know, people, it, it would be easy for a lot of people to say, I don't have the time Andy may has to do this. And when you look at that and go, well, do you have a half hour tomorrow or an hour tomorrow? Or do you have, look at your week. Do you have two or three hours this week? And it's the same thing with working out. You know, people be like, well, I don't, I don't have time to run. It's like, I don't know. Like you can get a pretty good run in, in the, in the time it takes to watch a Simpsons rerun, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it really isn't, if you're piecing things out that way, it's really not like you need tons and tons of time at any given day or any given week. Now it's different when the season opens and you might take your vacation during the rut or whatever, but all this setup stuff you're talking about, it's a cumulative thing. And it's not just, you know, I, I think a lot of people would listen to this and think it's a, you know, that's a public land only strategy and it's not, it's a, it's wherever you hunt. You know I mean? If you had like a bang in place where you were leasing and nobody was going in there, like you could probably play the scouting game a little different and be a little less impact. Mm-hmm. But for most people listening to this and for you and I, like, I know you, you can't really get away with that. Like you, you got to figure out what's going on and it is a year round thing, but it's not just a, a lump sum commitment. It's just over time. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've talked about a little bit in the past about, um, you know, some people that, that maybe do have a little more time or maybe they devote all of their time, like during the season. Um, and, and they do, they have more of like a volume hunting approach where, um, you know, they're going out and they're hunting pretty much every day that they have available, um, and sitting in a tree and hunting that way, hoping, um, you know, hoping the buck they're after or, or a good deer will make a mistake and, and walk by them. And, and I'm sure like, you know, some of those guys, I don't want to, you know, place them in one category, but some of those guys are, are really good at scouting and figuring things out too but they adopt that more time in the stand approach will equal my one or two chances at a good deer throughout the season. And that's a way to do it. And that's the way I used to do it. Um, before my daughter, that's absolutely the way I used to do it, especially early on. Um, I would average, you know, 60, you know, 60 plus days, you know, hunting out of a tree or on the ground. And, um, you know, I would manage, you know, one, two, three, three nice bucks a year. Um, but it was mostly due to just pure stubbornness, persistence, and making a lot of mistakes, and then just having that one thing go right that one time. And um, it, I, I think once I had my my child, um, you know, it really it, it, it switched priorities for me as far as like where I wanted to devote the bulk of my time and where I, I wanted to be present. Um, but what I, what it ended up doing, it just started dispersing my hunting time throughout the entire year. And what I, I kind of just evolved into like, okay, you know, I'm not going to be able to hunt 60 days a year and do this. So when I do hunt, I got to make it count. I got to be in the game more often instead of just going out there and hunting and observing and, and, you know, Oh, I, you know, maybe observe something one out of 15 days and then I move in and then I'm in the game. No, I got to gather information constantly every little spare minute minute I have to keep myself in the game, to get on, you know, a good deer in my home ground. 
And, um, that's just kind of what it's evolved into and, and kind of unintentionally, or it was intentional, but unintentionally, it made me, like you said, much more efficient with my time. And I've, I've enjoyed it more, you know, I'm my hunts that I do go on when I decide to go in after a deer or into a location that I've been staying out of that I know is heating up. My optimism is high. My confidence is high. I'm much more attentive. I feel more stealthy. Um, as opposed to like hunting 60 days where I might be getting a little sloppy, a little burnout. I don't have confidence. I'm feeling guilty about being out there because I've been out there for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, I don't have that as much because I'm really picking and choosing, um, when I go. So like last year, um, I'll, I'll give you a kind of a quick overview of the last two years. Last year, I felt incredibly dialed in and, um, you know, I was my scouting, I was turning up things, you know, that were, that were valuable and my sits were very effective. Um, when I went in after a deer, you know, it was, it was, you know, a couple sits and I would, you know, I would get him killed. Um, my out of States hunt went, um, they went very smooth and I was able to locate good deer quickly and get them killed. Um, I just felt like I was firing on all cylinders. I was feeling good and confident. Well, I don't always feel that way. <laughs> you know, the year prior to that, I was having trouble, trouble turning up even a three-year-old buck here in Michigan. And I had the most cameras I've ever had out. I had a dozen or more cameras. I was covering four different counties. I was glassing, using cameras, scouting on foot, looking for sign. I could not find a buck over 115 inches. And my, you know, I was hunting more because I had the, the COVID time off. And I found myself just like starting to fall into that trap of like kind of relying on cameras more. I felt like I needed to cast my net wider. But I I was really trying to do a combination of like, you know, of 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 scouting and finding that sign, glassing and the trail cameras. And, you know, I just couldn't get anything going. But, you know, it was just those one, it was just those few times throughout the, the season where, boom, you know, something came together and I got it done. And those two, those two seasons were vastly different. Um, but I killed the same amount of bucks. I killed four that year. I killed four last year. So, I mean, it was the same type of scenario, but, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't always, even for someone like me, that's been at this a long time and has been using this kind of style of you know, scouting, you know, four or five times more than I actually hunt. Um, it, it still isn't always, it appears, it maybe some people think it appears like it's automatic and it's easy. It's not, it's not for me. Um, and I have years where I struggle. And, um, I mean that year, I, there was a couple of times throughout the year. I was like thinking to myself, like, how have I ever even killed a deer? Like, how have I even put an arrow in one of these animals ever? Cause I feel like so dumb, like nothing is working. All my instincts aren't, aren't paying off. Um, nothing that I think that I'm anticipating is happening. I can't find a good deer. Like what the hell? And then it just happens, you know, boom, you find that info, boom, it's hot sign. You get in there and you get it done. So, you know, it varies year to year. It's certainly, it's certainly not (laughs) so smooth every year, but that's my strategy and that's my tactic. And that's kind of what it's evolved to over the years because I do prioritize family. Um, and I will always, I will always do that, but I make sure to get my little adventures in out of state. Those are important to me. I just make them quick. I make them short. And, you know, by doing that, that kind of changes my mentality on those out of state trips a little bit. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that later, but that's about it, man. That's kind of how I, how I think about things. 
You know, that's it's interesting that when you, when you kind of highlight the the way that you felt in the, the last two seasons, because that's something we don't really talk about very much, and I, I don't think you see it portrayed that often, like in the in outdoor media. But I had kind of you know in the last couple of years, I've had I've had years where like, man, it was like day one or two, and I'm done. Good deer, big deer. And, you know, you string together like four or five of them and you're like, I just, everywhere I go, it's like, they're just, they're coming down the trail. And then you, like I had a year last year and this is probably cause I was, I spent most of my time taking the girls out and I had to save a couple tags for filming for one week in November. So I was like, it was an odd year for me anyway, but I just felt like that, like you're talking about where I'm like, I don't feel like I'm in the rhythm. You know, like I killed some deer and I killed some big ones and it, you know, like it ended up looking like a good season. It didn't feel like a good season. It felt like I was just off. And I think it was because, you know, having to save my Minnesota, my Wisconsin tags, I wasn't in the woods just doing what you're talking about. Like just kind of staying in the rhythm and seeing what's, what's going on this week and next week and not, you know, you know, kind of being like outside of it and then just dipping in for a big hunt was it didn't feel as good to me. I felt like I was just not in the freaking groove the way you need to be. And I think, I, th- I think that happens to a lot of people and, you know, and, and I get it right. Like if you're, if, if you're a weekend warrior because of your job and your family and stuff, that five days in between when you're not hunting, that's tough. Cause there's a yeah. lot going on. Like there's a lot changing in the woods hard mass, soft mass, all that stuff, you know, like uh, cold fronts, hot weather, all this stuff is, is affecting the deer. And you're like, outside of it and you can you can kind of speculate and go oh maybe they're doing this or maybe they're doing that but till you get in there and look around you just don't really know and so you're always coming back like that was one of the things that really surprised me when i when we had kids is i went from hunting anytime i want i mean 30 days in a row sometimes like you know no reason not to to man i've got these little girls five days a week and i'm a i, I went from life of luxury to weekend warrior. And it was like a culture shock to me because I was missing stuff all the time. And it took Mm -hmm. like a recalibration, like you're talking about where you're like, I just gotta, I I gotta be there as much as possible to mitigate this feeling because it's not good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And and you said it, you nailed it right there is that you get out of the rhythm and you know, the same thing with me, like you, you pull me out of that rhythm. You, you pull me out of the woods where I'm, you know, dipping in to different areas, checking cameras, glassing, getting in, looking for sign, reading the sign, monitoring, you know, how the deer are changing to different, you know, food sources and whatnot. You, you take me out of that. You don't give me that. Then I'm not efficient. You know, th- then, then you're just guessing. But if you give me little windows of that where I can dip in and that's what I've, that's what I've done for myself. I, I make sure I get those little windows in before work you know, during work on, on a, on a drive, you know, at my lunch hour, right after work, um, or, you know, on a, on an actual hunt where I'm just like, okay, you know, I got to get something going. I need to make a loop through here and really figure out, I need to get things stirred up in here, get some information. So I know what's going on. You get, you start giving me pieces of that. That's when I am most dangerous. Um, that's when I can start to figure things out and my percentage of my sits go way up. But yeah, for the weekend warrior guy, you know, and, and maybe those are some of the guys that are like, man, how do you do it when you only have, you know, two days to hunt? Well, you know, I wouldn't be nearly as effective if you only gave me two days to hunt and no time to scout. Yep. Um, you know, I, I've, I've 
done that more um, out of state. But you, what another thing you guys guys got to remember when I go out of state, um, I feel this is my opinion. Um, I've hunted 17 different states, so I, I feel like I can accurately and honestly answer this question for myself. But the most difficult state, the most difficult situation and scenario I've ever hunted in is right where I live. Um, and it's the, the lack of mature deer. So we have a severe lack of, of older age class deer. It's the number of people and it's the segmented land that's very small. So you don't have room to maneuver. And it's what I've hunted my whole life. I've killed, um, besides the, my first two years of hunting, I've killed a mature deer in Michigan every single year that I've hunted at least one. Um, so it's something I've took a lot of pride in. It's been my training ground. It's what I've experienced. It's what I know. It's what I've, um, the skills that I, whatever skills I have obtained have been a result of hunting in this sort of scenario. And I'm not saying it's the most difficult anywhere. It's just the most difficult I've hunted. Um, and I've hunted some other hard places as well that also get a ton of pressure, but nothing quite like this. So when I do travel out of state, for me, one, usually I'm going to an area that is better hunting, less pressure, more bucks, better age structure. So I'm, I'm transitioning from something that's very difficult for me to something that's still difficult, but not as difficult. So um, it, it, it might seem a little far-fetched for some guys, but I, I, I want to preface that um, by saying like, you know, I've, I've hunted in some pretty difficult conditions and then I'm going to areas where things are a little, it's a little better situation for me. And I've done that so often. I've been traveling and hunting for almost 25 years now. And, um, you know, I've, I've never, other than a, a couple of Western hunts, um, a, a high country mule deer hunt where I gave myself, uh, 10 days in the back country. And then one elk hunt where I gave myself six days. Every hunt I've been on has been less than that. And usually, usually they're four days or less. And it's, it's usually because work is very unflexible. I work at a school. I don't get vacation time. So I get the weekends. Um, I do have a ton of accumulated sick time, but you know, you can't call in sick for five straight days because they start asking questions, but you know, you, you call in sick, you know, on a Friday and a Monday, maybe once a year, you know, there's your four days. Um, you know, so I, I kind of, I'm real st strategic with when I might do that, or I get on, a, you know, get on a deer. It's like, okay, I need to be out there tonight in the morning or whatever. Maybe I call in sick. I use it more for that. Yep. Um, so, but anyway, when I, what I've done is, is I've haven't been able to stretch those long out of state trips, um, to where you would really you know, be able to get there and kind of get settled and get a feel for everything. So it's it's changed my whole mental approach on how I tackle those. I immediately am very, very aggressive. I immediately dive into, um, the areas that look good to me. And I have, I have no fear of, of bumping deer. I want to get in, figure out, uh, what I need to figure out, find the sign. If it's there, bump into deer, um, I'm, that's not a negative thing to me. Like that's a positive thing. Cause if I can do that, I know where some deer are. Um, you know, if it's a, a situation where I'm more of an open country situation, I'm going to be, you know, probably up on some sort of, uh, master vantage point and glassing and gathering information and try to do that as quickly as possible. And then move it in for a very aggressive, you know, very aggressive hunts. So I'm, I'm, I'm much more aggressive, 
um, because I'm on a time constraint and because I don't have the information. So I need to get the information as soon as possible, even if that means bumping some bucks and bumping into some deer. But by doing that, um, I wasn't always great at it and efficient. I mean, there's been some out-of-state hunts for sure where I've went home empty-handed, especially early on. Um, you know, but I, I, I kind of like, it's kind of like there's a, 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 a fire that's lit under your butt, right? That's like, okay, I need to, I need to find something quickly. I need to get into some hot sign quickly. I need to bump into a good buck, get eyes on a good buck, glass, a good buck, um, quickly so that I have a strike or two to go after him. And, and when you've done that for 25 years and you've, you've failed at it and you've tried things and you made mistakes, you just start to get good at it and you start to get real comfortable in that kind of low time frame, high pressure situation. And, um, you know, it, it's just a lot of experience, um, over time, a lot of instincts that have, have built up over time and a lot of confidence that you can kind of go into these other States that, in areas that you haven't been into and, and get on a good buck. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm going and, and killing, you know, 160 inch deer that are six years old everywhere I go. I mean, I'm not, that's not the case. You know, those deer happen occasionally, but like this type of hunting and this type of style that I do isn't really suited for the, um, you know, those, those really unique high scoring deer, these oldest deer, because a lot of times the trick with those is just locating them. And that often takes time and building some history with a deer and, and really getting that deer and his tendencies and, and all that dialed in. Yeah. Most of the time I'm looking for a good mature buck or a big rack buck, or, you know, a good Pope and young size caliber buck or bigger, um, in most cases. And in some States I'm more picky than others, but you know, the, it, it, that this kind of strategy and style lends into more of that, more of that kind of adventurous type hunting, throw into yourself into a new unfamiliar situation and try to get it done quickly. So that's just kind of, that's just kind of what I've done. And if I didn't do that, if I'm like, oh, you know, it's not worth me driving 15 hours to Nebraska or, you know, or nine hours to, to Tennessee, it's not worth it because I only have three days to hunt. If I, if I thought like that, I would never go. Yep. So I always justified it myself as like, well, if I do three days this year and I do three days next year, that's, there's my week, you know? And it, it, what it morphed into is just like, boom, you get there, you got limited time. Like, how are you going to get it done, man? You got to get in there. You got to mix it up. You got to get that encounter. You got to get that sighting. And I, I've gotten to the point now where it's like, if I can get, if, if I can find a buck to give me a little bit, then he's in trouble. You know, if I go there and I spend three days and I never get eyes on anything, you know, I come home empty handed. But if you give me a little bit, I get a sighting, I get a glimmer of time, I get a track, I get some hot sign, I find a group of does and it's during the rut and it's in a good area. You know, I like my chances and it's just a, a confidence thing that's built over the years, but it, it wasn't always there. Yeah. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination 
on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth earlier you said you know if i bump a buck that's great like i want to see him i want i want to know he was there like that that and what that reminds me of is you know we we talk this message all the time and you hear this from a lot of people that you just like have to outwork everybody all the time you know it's like a popular western thing it crept into the the public land whitetail space but when you're talking whitetails, you know, a lot of times you just need to outthink people. And, you mm-hmm. know, like when a lot of people, and why I say that is a lot of people would look at that and go, I, if I bumped a buck, I'd be pissed. <laughs> like if, if I'm walking through the woods and I look up and he gets out of his bed and takes off, that sucks because he's gone and he's never coming back. And when you do the kind of hunts that you're talking about, and and I've done a bunch of them too, you get like very comfortable with what people think are mistakes, right? Like, cause you make them all the freaking time. Like mm-hmm. you just, you're going to, and, and by the nature of those hunts, you're more cavalier than the average hunter probably is because you're not saving anything. Like you're not, you're not sitting there going, well, I'm going to be, you know, I got seven days off on November 7th through the 14th or whatever. So I'm going to, I don't want to go into this bedding area. You're like, I just want, I want something to work off of now. And I will risk some stuff to find that because if I do find it, it's a huge benefit and you're not yep. looking at that. So you're thinking differently than probably a lot of people are about this stuff yeah i mean the utmost priority is just finding a buck that i want to go after and the only way to do that is to observe it um 
you know, from a, a vantage point or an observation or something to like get eyes on him doing something, which would be my strategy more in like a, an open country scenario. Um, if it's more of a, a, a cover type setting, I'm diving in and I'm trying to find three things. I'm trying to find red hot sign, which is great. I can work with that. That's, that's, a, that's key. Um, I'm trying to get eyes on a buck, you know, so I'm just kind of what I often do in those scenarios is I, you know, I'll have my, my saddle and platform and everything with me and I slip through the cover and I still hunt with my bow. And what I'm doing is I'm hunting and I'm moving slow and I'm moving with the wind and I'm just moving with the woods and I'm constantly scanning. I'm watching where I step and I'm looking for sign. I'm looking for deer. I'm looking up ahead. Um, and sometimes I get eyes on a, a buck like that, or like you said, I bump a buck and because I'm moving slow and because I'm moving with the wind, you know, it, it, to me, that's not, it, that's still a good thing because now, boom, I got one located and that's the utmost priority is just getting one located. If I don't get one located, I go home empty handed. If I get one located by any means, I'm in the game now. Yep. Um, and then, and then often, you know, we, we think that, you know, and in some cases, in some situations, yeah, some types of train, you bump a deer and they can go a long ways. You think like fat, flat ag country where, you know, it's a half mile from one woodlot to the next. Yeah. They run a half mile <laughs> to the next woodlot often, especially if the crops are down, but like in a hill country setting, um, I've had bucks, you know, you bump them off one Ridge and they go down and you know, the ravine and they're up on, you know, they go and they get on the next Ridge over and they start resuming you know, their normal behavior or they feel comfortable up there and they're not that far like, or, you know, in a, in a, like a Western Plains setting, you know, you bump a deer and I've literally, you know, been able, you know, up high and you could see them and they go into the next patch of cover. Um, so they don't always, you know, are they going to a patch of cover that you can see and now you know where they're at and now you're set up for, you know, that, that next evening's hunt or the next morning or whatever. So it, it's not a negative to bump a deer. I mean, um, I don't really want to have a deer wind me. Um, but that's why you, when you're, that's why I take that approach of like kind of still hunting and still scouting and slipping through the cover and I'm quiet and I'm playing the wind in my favor and, and kind of working my way into the wind or into a crosswind just for that reason. Um, and, and then if it's a rut hunt, um, you know, Kentucky, Iowa, um, you know, Ohio, you know, where it gets a little more, you know, a little more timbered. Yeah. Like if, if I bump into a group of does, you know, that might lead me to a good spot that might lead me to a good buck because a lot of those cases, especially when you get into some like lower deer densities, like that's my strategy. Like I need to find deer. I need to get on deer. And usually because there's a decent number of bucks and a good age structure, if you can find those little pockets of does, um, you know, that could get, that could turn your hunt around in, in an instant. Um, you know, I think about like, um, some of the areas I've hunted in like Kentucky and Ohio, and even some of the spots where I've hunted, like in Iowa, uh, Indiana, you know, the deer densities were lower, but there was good age structure. And, you know, I, I have many, many times like studied um, and cyber scouted like a, a topo map and an aerial map. And I find these good terrain funnels that just like, just textbook, you know, like one of the things I look for is like 
a ridge system that has a lot of uh, features to it. So I like ridge systems that have a lot of bedding points, a lot of bowls, benches, saddles, just a lot that should hold a lot of deer. And then I look for another one that's around there. And then I like to see how they connect through maybe like a saddle or a bench system or a big bowl that wraps around and connects to the other one that has those same features. And, you know, you look on that and you're like, man, if I could get there, that's the connection between all these ridge systems in the area. That's going to be the spot for the rut. And I've went to some of these spots in these lower deer density areas. And it's like, you sit there for two or three days and you don't see a single deer. And so it doesn't always pan out. Um, and especially in those low deer density areas. So my approach then is, is I get down and I do exactly what I was just talking about, but I'm just trying to find deer. And usually if it's the right time of year, it's in those first two weeks of November, you know, you start bumping into deer, the good bucks are there. You know, there's usually a good buck in the area with a doe and there's some satellite bucks around and and yeah, you might need to bump into a few pods of deer, but, um, that, that tactic has led to success on a short-term hunt, just moving around, slipping around. Ideally, you like to get eyes on them first, but if you bump into some deer, you kind of see where they go, you know, if there's a good buck with them, you're, you're in the game there. So it's a lot of different strategy. It's a lot of different style. And you and I talked about this yesterday a little bit. It's, it's being versatile. Um, you know, having a lot of different tactics, and having the confidence to do different things. Um, I've never pigeonholed myself into like one tactic. Like I hunt, you know, I focus on like primary scrapes, you know, during the rut, or I'm a bed hunter, or I like to hunt, you know, a funnel between uh, two doe bedding areas during the rut. And I live and die by that strategy. There's guys out there that do that and they're super, um, consistent and really, um, successful, but I've adopted more of an approach of, I like to try to do many different tactics in many different types of terrains during different times of the year. And I think what that's done for me is maybe I, I'm not like as masterful as some of these other guys at a specific tactic, but I've become good and confident at just about anything, um, it, you know, any situation that's thrown at me. And I'm not afraid to try some things that are out of the box, um, try some things when the conditions seem not ideal for deer movement, like every set of conditions to me, it just offers you some sort of different strategy. Um, so it's, it's like a confidence thing there and a, and a, being a versatile, well-rounded hunter. That's always been something that I've strived for and I've wanted to try to become like that is my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is not being successful. My ultimate goal is just trying to become a better hunter and learning new things from other guys and trying new things and just becoming a better woodsman and a better well-rounded hunter. And then that has led to success over the years in a lot of different types of areas and terrain. I think, you know, the specialists, you know, the bed hunters or, you know, somebody who might be really good at you know, spotting and stalking out in the sand hills of Nebraska or something like they get a lot of love because it's cool. Like if you're from different regions and you hunt differently, that like, that looks cool. But the the goal of being like a high level generalist with your strategies, I think, is the best one for most people. Because, you know, like when you and it, this is going to sound like a kind of a 
a public land thing, but it's really across the board, wherever you hunt, whatever type of land you hunt is, you know, how often it is. If you go in and you find that banging sign so often, especially if you're on pressured deer, it's going to be a place that doesn't lend itself that well to just like, I'm going to get right up in that tree and I'm 20 yards downwind to all these scrapes and everything. And it's perfect. Like you're always making concessions. Like now I got to set up on the ground or now I got to, you know, saddle up and I'm going to be six feet up in a tree hiding behind it or something like that to make it work. Because it seems like, especially if you find a, like a concentration where there's some bucks really using it, it's so often like not that dreamy kind of turkey hunting woods that you'd expect where you could like, like, or, or another way to think about it, probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast never even did this, but you know, like remember when climbing stands were really hot, everybody was making them right. Everybody had a climbing stand and you know, for some situations they were great, but if you threw one of those on your back and walked into the woods, I, I did this all the time. I'd find a place I wanted to hunt and I'm like, I don't have a tree. So now I'm like backing off of where I wanted to hunt so I can hunt for a tree instead. And it's part of the reason why they just like, I mean, they're almost not even in the conversation anymore because we have mm-hmm. such better options. And, but that was like a specialist thing when you need, when you needed just a, a generalist way to hunt those areas. And I think, I think a lot of people look at that on like a private land spot. If you have your place, you've always hunted and you go, well, I can go in in August and hang stands and I don't need to do that. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe. But maybe you hunt a, you know, a place where a lot of other people are in there. Maybe you're not having the success you want. And if you opened up your aperture a little bit and said, you know, yeah, I'll preset some stands and some, you know, entrance routes and all that stuff. But you keep that saddle handy and you keep the ability to sit on the ground, whether you gilly up or however you do it. Now you're pretty freaking lethal because you're not going to run into a situation like a spot on a spot that you can't hunt probably. And that's important. Right. Yeah. And that, that makes me think about a, a buck. Um, I'll make it quick. It's a, it's a cool story though, because it, it, it took some creative thinking. And I think, I think creative thinking is, is, is really good to have as a hunter. Um, you know, we, we watch these TV shows where, you know, it's, it's plant the food plot and, you know, stay out. And this is the strategy, or, you know, we listen to, you know, podcast with some of these really successful high level hunters and they got a, a really dialed in strategy. And I, I do that. I eat that stuff up and I love to learn from guys that are better at things than me, but sometimes getting creative and kind of forging your own way and, and, and figuring things out to make you a more well-rounded hunter, it just makes you more versatile and it, 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 it allows you to go just about anywhere and be effective and any type of situation, any type of conditions, there's always something, okay, you know what, this isn't ideal for, for, for good movement. So, but it's super windy, it's noisy, it's perfect time to still hunt. And I'm going to still slip through this bedding area, you know, with my bow and kind of move with the wind, you know, so every type of situation and and condition kind of opens the door for, for some way to kind of be effective. But this, this, this particular hunt, I want to tell you about, um, it's a really, really cool area in Michigan. It's a ton of pressure, but there's this, this Creek bottom that kind of winds through ag country and the Creek itself is only about, I don't know, 10, 15 feet wide. So it's not a real big Creek. Um, but on each side of that Creek is a bunch of like marsh grass and red osier dogwood. And, um, there's some cottonwoods and stuff kind of sprinkled in through there, but it's just really, really good, co- uh, bedding cover all through that. And it's wide, you know, there are some parts where the marsh is very wide 
And then there's other parts where it kind of necks down. Well, I was hunting this part um, where it necks down a little bit. So it kind of funnels movement down, but not really tight. Um, there just wasn't a good tree to get in, like where you really needed to be, where a lot of the deer kind of cruise through and stuff during the rut. And I'll preface too, this, this area is, is awesome during the rut, like early season, there's very rarely, you know, many mature deer in there, or good bucks. It's, it's, it's like a doe factory and a young buck factory. And there's a lot of deer in there, but come mid-October, you can start getting some two-year-olds, occasional three-year-olds nosing around. And by late October through, you know, through those first two, three weeks of November, it, it can be really good. Um, just cause there's so many does in there, but I found this, this, um, cottonwood tree and it sets up on, you know, right where that kind of necks down, it's just perfect. Or so I thought, so I hunted that and, um, you know, I, I'd learned enough about the area to stay out of there until kind of those, you know, the pre-rut starts kicking in and then slip in, let the does be in there, let them do their thing. I'd hunted it a lot of years and just to no avail, like early season and kind of mid October, but it heated up. So I knew it's one of those spots where you got to time it right. And if you do that, you're going to have a, a better chance. But I sat in this tree several times and every time, you know, there's bucks cruising bucks. That I'd be happy to shoot. And they're just out into the creek bottom more and, um, you know, just out of reach for a bow. And there was nothing out there for me to get in. It's just a bunch of bushy trees and red brush and, and a real tall marsh grass. And the tree I was able to get in was awesome for a gun, but I was trying to get them with a bow and it just wasn't in the spot. So I didn't tag one out there that year. So after, uh, after the season ended, I went out there and I scouted and I kind of walked out to where like all this traffic seemed to filter through. So this like 70 yard area, and I was like, I gotta somehow hunt here but I didn't like a ground setup because it was just so tall. It would require a lot of like little lanes to cut. And, you know, I just didn't want to go through all that trouble. And I just didn't think it would be super effective. Like I wanted to try to get elevated. So I started looking around and there was these, these 12 foot bushy trees. I'm not sure what kind they were, but you know, they're kind of like oval shaped bushy trees. And I'm looking and I'm like trying to think, I was like, God, you know, it's not big enough to get a, a stand in or even a saddle. I was like, but, I was like, I think I, if I cut that out and get on some sort of like step ladder or something, like I could tuck right into one of those trees. So what I did was I took our, um, I took our old Christmas tree and instead of throwing it out, I drug it out there and I cut out this bushy tree, you know, about 10 foot up. Um, and I stuffed the Christmas tree up there upside down. So the kind of, you know, the needles kind of will stay a little longer. And I stuffed it into that tree to give it like a blob like a profile that looks like something's up there. And I did that just to kind of create, um, in case the deer kind of caught on and like, what is that up there? So that way they would get used to it. And then I cut a little like hole for that tree to be in. And then I cleared out a spot at the base of that tree. And I put one of those like aluminum step ladders that kind of fold down there. They have like three steps with the black, you know, the black steps. And I tucked that in there. So by me standing on that top ladder, I lined right up perfectly with that Christmas tree and I just like tucked right into that bush. Well, I ended up, I left that out there all year and I ended up um, hunting that during the rut the following year. And it was like my second or third sit. And I arrowed a really nice uh, Michigan nine point, good mature deer, heavy. And uh, it was so cool, man, because it was just, 
that creative thinking thinking that got me into the right place. Um, and if I was just kind of like standard, had to be in a tree, you know, I would have, I would have sat all season and, and did what I did the year before and watched everything out in front of me and probably just tried like rattling and calling and all this stuff that, that is, is really ineffective here. So, you know, just by being a little creative, having some creative thinking and, and trying that approach, you know, it got me a kill there. So I, I thought that was a cool story kind of fit with what we were talking about. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is cool. And it's such a good lesson because it's so easy to sort of get locked into like, I'm a saddle guy and I have to do it, or I'm a, this guy or whatever. And just, you just think about like, when I think about, you know, I don't know the last 20 bucks I shot on public land, probably like, you know, 40% of them happened in a way where you're just like tucked into a, like the first two rows of a cornfield or your, you know, like I, the first, the first big buck I ever killed on public land was a, was a buck in North Dakota that was crossing, uh, this, this one specific crossing on the river and he was going by a, a cottonwood tree. And I was like, I'm just going to go down to that cottonwood tree. I'm going to get in there. And I'm going to shoot him at 20 yards. It's going to be over. And I walked up to that cottonwood tree to, to set up in it. And it was like eight times too big to fit my stand strap. You know, you know what I mean? I had that perspective of sitting up there glass. And then I walked up to it. And I'm like, there's no way. And I ended up just sitting behind the tree because I was like, this is where I got to be. And I guess deer can't see through trees. And I killed that buck as he walked by. And you, when, when that stuff happens, you just think like, you know, you have this made up in your mind how this is going to go. Or, you know, like I'm going to go into this spot or I'm going to go on this public land hunt somewhere, or this first hunt with my buddies. And I'm going to set up here or do this, you know, especially from a lot of your e-scouting. And then you get in and you go, this needs me to think about it differently now. Like what, what I thought about what this was going to be is not it. So you can either kind of just like be stubborn and just like, I'm going to figure out a way to be in a saddle and I'm going to get as close as I can or whatever I want to do. Or you're going to do something like you're talking about, which is totally outside the box, but puts you right where you need to. And kind of like your example, there, killing that buck with that little step ladder. It's, it's like a great example of like how we give deer too much credit. Like when you're, when you're around them in that situation, you're talking about on that Creek bottom and they're rutting and going crazy. They're, they're not that smart, even in a state like Michigan with a ton of pressure, even, you know, like if you've got the wind right and you can hide yourself a little bit and they're, they're used to whatever you're doing, like you have so many advantages. And I think when you do something like that and it works, you go, wow, like maybe, maybe, you know, and I'm not saying undersell them, you know, give them the credit. But I think we give them so much credit sometimes that a lot of people would never try that or try risking something like that. And you know, like when you do it, sometimes it freaking works. Or and, it, and it, even if you hadn't killed a buck there, you'd have learned a bunch just from your encounters. That's so important. Yeah. Well, my buddy, uh, Jesse Coots says it best. It's like, you know, deer, even mature bucks, they're not smart. We are smart. <laughs> they're not smart. They have really dialed in instincts to stay alive um instincts to breed and while i don't i do think you know maybe we give mature deer a little too much credit sometime i do believe that you do have to think about them a little differently than you know your doe your 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 yearling bucks they they do in a lot of cases behave differently they move a little more cautiously they live a little more back in the cover where they have more of a, a sight advantage, a wind advantage, um, a hearing advantage. 
So it, you need to think about them a little differently, but, um, you know, they're, they're, we do give them a little too much credit. Like if you can do that and you can learn about them and their, and their behaviors and where they like to be and when they like to move and how they like to move, then it's not that difficult. But a lot of times the most difficult thing is just finding one, you know, um, uh, that's always the most challenging thing for me is just finding a mature deer. It's not getting an arrow in the mature deer. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but yeah, some, sometimes we make it out to be this huge feat. Um, when, you know, it, it is a difficult thing and you definitely need to be a savvy hunter and you definitely need to think about things differently. But, um, you know, they're, they're still just an animal and they're still trying to survive and they still have instincts and behaviors that are, you know, they vary from deer to deer a little bit, but they're pretty standard. And once you start to learn those and you learn how to approach those and how to, uh, you know, take advantage of those, then the, the blueprint is fairly simple, but applying that, you know, implementing that can sometimes be difficult. Um, if guys aren't willing to, you know, put in the time, put in the work, put in the patience, um, be willing to learn, be willing to try different things. Um, I, I always stress hunters, you know, especially, you know, when they're starting out to, um, to favor more of an aggressive approach. And the reason I say that is because I think by pushing the limits and being aggressive, what it does is it puts you on a fast track through a lot of mistakes. And if you can do that, if you can, you know, make those aggressive moves and try to push in and you're, you know, maybe I should push in a little more, or maybe I should hold back and I'll push in a little more, you know, and then set up or push in a little more and, and occasionally bump that deer. Because by doing that, you're making these mistakes and your, your instincts, if you think about it and you ask why, and what can I do different? What was the mistake I made? Your instincts are starting to kick in and they start recalibrating you know, over time, you know, you start to recall these hunts that went bad because I did this, this went well because I did that. Okay. I'm running, I'm in the same situation. I remember back five years when I did that, or that mature buck did this, you know, you start having these experiences because you're more aggressive. You're throwing yourself into the game. You're throwing yourself into the fire and you got to learn quick. And you have that approach and that mental, uh, that, that mental game of like trying to learn and trying to analyze your mistakes and trying to eliminate them or improve on them. You start building those instincts and you start improving quicker as opposed to, you know, being more of a cautious hunter that's afraid to bump anything. You know, I don't want to get too that too close to that because that's the sanctuary and I want them to feel safe. Well, if you're always on the outside, you're not getting as many of those encounters. You're not making as many of those mistakes. You're not learning as quickly. So by, by having that more aggressive approach, two things happen. You learn more quicker and you start to get better with that aggressive approach and that aggressive approach when it's timed, right. When the timing is right, when everything is, is in your favor or most of it, and it's time to go, that aggressive approach is what is what really kills those big bucks. So, you know, I, I would, I would, you know, give someone that is in a little different situation you know, maybe you have, you know, a 300 acre farm and you're managing it and you're, you and your, your son are the only one on there and you're 
creating a bedding habitat and some food sources and you want to stretch out a whole season of enjoyment and you know you got the big buck that's that's been on there for four or five years now and he's mature and you that's the one you want to target you know i I might i might or i definitely would probably recommend more of an outside in approach where you can you know hunt the fringes and play the wind and, and be a ghost and let that deer make a mistake because it's in a lower pressure setting they're going to move more they're not getting that human interaction so they're going to move more they're going to feel more comfortable i would take more of an approach like that in that type of situation but it's still good to have that aggressive mindset when it's when it's time to dive in um so i I think it kind of goes both ways in that scenario but I, I do, I do always recommend, you know, be more aggressive, man, get in there, mix it up. Stop being afraid that you're going to bump this deer and never see him again. Like get in there and get some encounters with them because you're going to get better at it. You're going to start capitalizing more and you're going to learn more. And that's going to benefit you five years down the road. You're going to be that much better. 10 years down the road, you're going to be twice the hunter you were, you know, you're talking 15, 20, 25 years down the road of, of doing that, being aggressive, learning trial and error, developing those instincts, all of a sudden, dude, you're a killer out there. You know, you got the woodsmanship, you got the confidence, you got the ability to go into any situation and you feel like, you know, all right, I can do this. I can figure this out. I've, I've experienced this dozens of times. I know where they like to bed. I know where they like to travel. I know the conditions that they like to move in more. I feel comfortable slipping in through here with the wind and with my bow still hunting and maybe getting eyes on that buck or maybe coming across fresh sign or coming to that hot funnel where, you know, you bumped into a couple group of does and there's a, a good train funnel with some, some beat down tracks and a couple of fresh rubs on it. And it's November 5th. It's like, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're more comfortable in that situation because you've been doing it for years and years. It's a long-term play. It's a long-term development. And I think that's the, the approach and what I've kind of evolved into. Um, as a hunter and it it might be a little more difficult for me to be like oh andy come to you know mark jury's farm and kill you know mr 220 like i don't know that i would be that great at that you know um i'd probably see him or you know i figure out where he's bedding and i want to go in and, and get him killed that day you know that's more of my approach um and it may not be the best approach always in that type of setting so this is just what i do and it's a it's a it's an accumulation of hunting in a pressured area in Michigan where my chances are few and far between and then and then traveling to these other states with limited time frame and I got to get it done in a short time frame. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth when you when you say because people are going to listen to this and they're going to go well, i don't want to get aggressive because i don't i don't know what to do there but what you're also saying there is to not do what other people are doing and mm-hmm. so it, like when you think about i know you've seen this a ton when I, when i walk around let's say i'm scouting public land down in iowa I can, I can look on the aerial photos and I can just about call my shots where I'm going to see stands. Like you can look and just know where they're going to be. And that's because people are setting up on logging roads and they're setting up on, you know, the, the little fields or the food plots or whatever. And you just know. And so when you say like, take, take a aggressive approach or do something differently, a lot of times it's just don't sit where most people would. Because, you know, like back to when we're talking about giving bucks too much credit, we make it so easy for them a lot of times. Or I would say, you know, maybe 85% of the hunters out there make it so easy for them to know what we're probably going to do. You know, we're going to, we're going to park in the same spots. We're going to walk the same entrance routes. And if you're, if you're not, you know, I mean, you could look at it differently than saying, say, be aggressive. You could just think differently. Like just, just think differently. Cause most people aren't going to be aggressive. Most people aren't going to get off that logging road too far. They're not going to get off those field edges. And those deer know that, like, it's just, it's so common. And it, this is something that sounds like it's mostly like a public land, you know, strike quick type of thing. But when you think about like that, that example you've got there of the, the father and son, they got 300 acres and they're, you know, we're, we're really cautious. We don't go into the bedding area. We don't go into the sanctuary. We sit the outside edges. We move in, you know, by Halloween or whatever. And it's like, they, you know, great. That might work. That might work great for a lot of people in a lot of situations. You might also be in a state that's not that great. You might also just, you know, have neighbors that are, you know, it, it, there might be a lot of things going on where it would actually be more beneficial for you to acknowledge the pressure you put on specific sites and think about being aggressive and going in and doing something differently 
because we always kind of like externalize this, right? We like, oh, that, you know, that idiot that's walking around, you know, with the crossbow scaring everything away, he's ruining it for me. Well, yeah, he might've been out there one day and you've been out there nine. And like, we, but we're, you know, like we're biased toward other people's pressure and other people's mistakes, but we don't think about it that way with ourselves. And if you're going to the same three stands over and over all season long volume hunting, like you talked about earlier, like you, you might really, really be hurting your chances, even though you think like I'm putting in the hours, this is going to happen when all you might have to do is go back off 200 yards into the timber and kill one on a staging area or find, find something, some soft edge in there or something that's just different than what most people would hunt. And you catch that buck off guard. And that's, that, that's one of the lessons there that I think is so important for everybody is just think a little bit differently about this stuff because we all have access to the same information. We all have kind of the same like desire to go sit where it's wide open and we can see a long ways. We all have the desire to kind of be lazy with it to some extent. And if you don't do that stuff, you're going to think differently. You're going to hunt differently. You're going to kill more deer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I, that makes me think of like something, you know, you and I have talked about in the past of, you know, pretty kind of the standard is, you know, you put, you put the wind in your face, you, you go to your spot, you want the wind in your face blowing from where you expect deer to come to you. And that's the safest option. And, and that's a, a good option. If you're kind of hunting kind of that outside in approach, keeping pressure low, trying to stay hidden, but oftentimes, um, especially with a mature buck and we're talking outside of the rut here before they start doing different things where their instincts flip more towards breeding and rutting as opposed to early season and late where their instincts are more, you know, survival. Um, they, they, mature bucks will move further when they have a wind advantage. So what I've, what I've noticed over the years is that if, if I can get in a situation where I can give that buck the wind, or what he thinks is the wind, what we call more of like an off wind. Um, that's, that's the best case scenario for me to get a, a, a mature deer to move as far as possible from where he's betting. So it's kind of like a high risk, high reward type sit, but it seems like mo- majority of the time when I kill one kind of in that early season to mid October, it's got some sort of like crosswind or some sort of like quartering wind in the direction of where that deer is. And, and what I've noticed is they just move further because they're able to clear what's out in front of them. Um, you know, from, from the safety of their bedding area. So they feel comfortable moving in that direction. And that's not to say if you have the wind in your face, they won't move their direction. No, they will. If that's the way they want to go, they'll still come, but they might wait till the last few minutes of daylight to do that. And you really, if, if that's the game you're going to play, you've got to get real tight into their bubble. Um, you know, you got to get real tight to their bedding area where you're risking a little more of getting seen, of getting heard, um, you know, a wind shift, a wind swirl. A lot of these mature bucks like to bed where the wind kind of swirls or where, where thermals tend to dump down in the evening. So you start running a little more risk when you get in tight and I've done it, I've done it with the wind in my face and you get in tight and you get them killed. But sometimes you can back off, get a little bit safer location and you're getting kind of that off wind that's kind of blowing off to the side of him. And he still thinks that he can move in that direction and clear it with his nose. 
that's a major advantage for you because now you can get back a little more safer approach and let that deer kind of come. But what you run the risk of is that, you know, that wind doesn't always blow that perfectly straight uh, direction the whole time. It'll blow a little to the left, a little to the right. So you, you know, you might want to give yourself a little more uh, leeway there than what you would think. It's not always just a perfect straight line. And if you don't, if that, that, that scent cones out as it gets a little closer and then it's always shifting a little left and right. But that's how I killed my buck last year. Um, my second buck on public land here in Michigan last year is I gave him the wind. I had a feeling of where the sign was located of where he was betting and he was betting in this thicket. And I just didn't feel like by setting up where all this sign was outside of the bedding, I found all these scrapes under these oak trees. I just didn't feel like that time of year that he was going to travel that far. There was some great trees in there. It was a little swirly in there. I didn't really like that setup, but the sign, if you know, I think like a, um, any other hunter would have seen that sign and be like, this is the spot. And it, and it was, but the wind was swirling and it was far enough away from the bedding area. I was like, I just don't, I don't think he's going to move this far on October 16th. I just don't. So what I did was I got the wind in my favor. I circled around the thicket where I thought this deer was bedding and I got more up on the upwind side and the wind was like blowing towards him, but it was blowing a little off to the left. And I got, I was able to get sneak into that thicket and I got into it just enough, um, where I was like inside of his bedding area, but he was probably, you know, where he ended up getting up and moving out of was probably 75 yards away. So it was a very cautious and quiet and stealthy approach like that last, you know, 50 yards. And it, this is another cool story because I got set up in the saddle. And like you said, you know, I don't, I didn't want to get up high. I don't want him to see me. I want to make as least amount of noise as possible. I just want to get up above enough where I can shoot down into the, the tall weeds and stuff. And I got set up and at one point I was setting a stick and I just clicked a branch just like, click, and I was like, Oh God, you know, just, just enough where like, if there was a deer around, you know, within 50 yards, he probably would have heard it. So I get set up, I get my platform up and I get settled. And all of a sudden I see this mature doe approaching me like dead silent looking up in the trees right in my direction but because i'm in the saddle i'm on the back side of the tree and i'm i'm hiding like this and she comes 15 yards from the base of the tree and she's doing this looking right up at me and she had heard that and i was like this doe is going to blow the whole thing i just remain motionless she looks around for a few minutes kind of noses around she's smelling my wind is going just to the left of her and she turns around, flickers her tail, walks right back in the bedding. And I'm like, whew, dodged a bullet. But that's the game you're playing a lot of times when you're slip, slipping into these, these, these bedding areas. Like, that's how stealthy and quiet you got to be. So later on, um, I, this, the, the sign that this buck had been lefting was, was very aggressive. There was, like, tons of scrapes open up in that little, that little oak grove, you know, a lot for, for that time of year. Some rubs were popping up. And I had a feeling I was, you know, dealing with a, you know, an aggressive type deer is laying down a lot of sign and I'm in his bedding area. Now I'm in his cover. He's got the wind in his favor, but I do know, I do realize he doesn't really, he's not really probably going to come my direction. I'm on the upwind side. I'm not in the direction of where those oaks are. I'm not in the direction of where those scrapes are. I'm in the opposite direction. So I'm like, you know, I need to somehow try to draw him over here. 
So I'm not a huge caller, but I will call. I'm confident calling when I think the situation is right. And a lot of that is, you know, matching the attitude of the buck. And a lot of it is being more subtle rather than aggressive. And a lot of it is the location. And I felt like I'm in this deer's bedding area. I shouldn't be able to get into here where I am without him detecting me, but I did. And so what I did was imagine the, the wind is blowing, you know, to the left of this deer, you know, towards him. So I turned to my right and away. So the opposite direction of the wind, straight line, opposite direction. And I try to cast my call. What I do is I do a little, I did a little brr, like a long drawn out um, uh, grunt. Nothing real aggressive, but just a long, drawn-out grunt. That's been, like, my most successful call on mature deer. And then I tried casting it directly away from the wind to make it sound like it was coming from further that way. I'm sure you've heard, you know, being an avid turkey hunter, like, you can have a turkey, um, you know, on a ridge facing the other way, and it gobbles, and it sounds like it's a mile away, and then all of a sudden it turns faces you and gobbles and you're like, holy shit, he's right there. Yep. So that's what I was trying to replicate or in the elk woods, you know, you got an elk just below the bench and he, you know, he bugles and you would swear he's on the other mountain. And then all of a sudden he comes up over that ridge and he bugles and he's right in your face. You can cast that call, you know, by just changing direction. So what I do is try casting it away from me in hopes that he would think that I'm not where I am, but where the call was coming from. And what this deer did was I just wanted to let him know there was an intruder in there and just hopefully draw him my direction because I don't expect that he wants to come this way naturally. So I thought that was my only shot. So it starts to get a little darker and all of a sudden I hear rubbing in the bedding area and he's thrashing trees. And I was like, this deer's fired up. Like I caught him on the right day. I'm in the right spot. He knows some, someone's in here. And all of a sudden I hear him kind of sloshing through the water a little bit. There's some little wet spots in there and I hear him thrashing multiple trees. And then all of a sudden I haven't heard many of them in Michigan, but I hear a snort wheeze and I'm like, dude, he is coming, you know, and here he comes and he's doing the moon shape, you know, circling downwind. And, and what I did worked to a T he wasn't circling downwind to me. He was circling downwind of where he thought that call came from. And by casting it up, you know, maybe he thinks it's 30 yards that way or 50 yards that way, but it was just enough for him to cut that corner and work right in front of me. As opposed to if I would have blew the grunt call at him, he pinpoints my location. Now he circles downwind of where I am instead of where he's, where I'm trying to pretend I am. And I would have got busted. But in this case, he does that moon shape. He's circling downwind, but he's circling downwind of where that call came from. And he does a little moon curl right in front of me and I shoot him at 28 yards. So, I mean, just a, a really cool hunt, but a lot of things, a lot of things there, creative thinking, um, getting in tight to where a buck feels comfortable moving in daylight, reading the fresh sign, realizing you're in a spot, you know, where that fresh sign is, the wind swirls, because what it was is it was a, 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 a big river bottom system, but it's, it's wooded. And there's like a, a opening, like a little oak grove in the woods. So, you know, it's, it's all timber. And then there's like this, you know, 50 yard, 60 yard opening. And, you know,
you know, when the wind is blowing, like from the North, what it does is it hits that opening and it circles down and sucks right back up to the North. That creates a big swirling effect in there. And I was throwing milkweed and I was like, oh man, I can't set up in here. So then I just like creative thinking, okay, I got to get around and get in tight to where this buck is bedding, get in his bubble and give him the wind and call. I think the, the mentality is right. I think the timing's right. I'm going to cast this call up there. And it, it just worked and it doesn't always work like that, but that's a, a great hunt that just kind of shows a lot of different factors of what I was thinking and how my brain was working through that yeah. specific scenario. That That's cool. I, I think the two things that everybody should take away from that are, you know, obviously it was the right situation to call, but the, the proximity and the comfort level there for that deer, that's so important. I mean, you know, like you, you brought up turkeys and, and elk deer turkeys and elk any any animal you can communicate with that way proximity is so important if they don't Mm -hmm. expect you to be or you know like if they hear you from a long ways away you know if you were 300 yards away banging your antlers together to try to draw that buck in you're he's not coming no not gonna happen when you get that close to him and he hears that that's a different thing it's the same thing you know you get that gobbler that's out there strutting in the middle of the field in his strutting zone at noon and you're on the field edge a half a mile away you can call your ass off and he's probably not coming Yep. But you sneak around there below the ridge and you get up, you know, 50, 75 yards away from him, scratch a little bit, do a little bit of yelping. It's nothing for him to commit now. Yeah. It's it's a different thing. And then the other thing with that deer, the other lesson is we we think about and you brought this up, like we think about wind almost always entirely like, is it good or bad for us? Like, are we gonna get busted or not? Is it in my face or not? But when you start thinking about how they use the wind. Like they, they, that's like x-ray vision to them, man. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's the most important thing. And when you talk about getting that little edge where it's like, man, the wind's almost not good for you. Almost. Mm -hmm. That's like super important because that means it's pretty damn good for them. And when it's good for them, you know I mean? Like, you know, I love bird dogs and when I watch bird dogs, like, or we filmed them like in the cattails hunting in the, in the late season. And you can see like, they can't use their eyes at all. You know, and you watch how they use their nose. It's like a master class on like why, like how important that is to animals that have that developed olfactory sense. Like it's a different thing. And so when you start thinking about it that way, instead of just being like, I have to just get into a tree and have the wind blowing in my face. It's like, great. Like that's, there's situations that's perfect. You know, if you're on like a rut funnel and it should just Mm -hmm. be, it's a, it's a, you know, terrain trap of some sort. Perfect. Great. Yep. You know, and, and there's situations where that works, but there's just so many times, you know, you hunt the big woods and it's pretty flat or you hunt a lot of places like where they're going to use that freaking wind in such a way that like you, you got to be risky. Like you gotta, you gotta go, I'm going to set up here. And it, you know, if this switches 15 degrees, I'm hosed, but mm-hmm. if it stays like this, he's going to feel pretty damn confident. And that puts you in the game in a way on those bucks. That's just it's like hard to describe until you have that happen. And it that's like a, that thing leaves a mark when you see that. Cause you just go, okay, this is a whole new world of whitetail behavior. Um, we're, we're almost out of time here, buddy. So I have one last question for you to kind of sum up this, this rabbits with antlers thing. What's the dumbest thing you've seen a mature buck do? Like, what's the one time, like, think back, like, what's the time where you were just like, I cannot freaking believe that that deer did that. Yeah, it was, it was probably right very close to when I started hunting, it was in Michigan. And, um, you know, this is back when I was watching a lot of, a lot of like outdoor TV and, you know, reading 
articles about some of these guys that were, you know, obviously hunting, you know, unpressured deer. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I owned a set of those like big giant white synthetic antlers. And, um, you know, that's what I saw on TV and it worked darn near every time. And, and that's, you know, that's how I was hunting. And I was in Michigan and I was on a, uh, you know, on a, a permission piece and I was set up right on a field edge because, you know, that's what you do. And behind me where I was not even really facing, like I was facing like the beans, you know, and these lush beans and I'm expecting to see all these, you know, big bucks come out. And obviously that doesn't happen, but behind me was like this old set aside field. Um, and I just happened to glance. It was great bedding cover. I didn't know enough about this type of, you know, terrain and this type of habitat to really know that like that's, that is good for mature deer. But, um, I look behind me and I see a nice mature eight point kind of walking parallel, you know, to me. And I had the wind, the, the wind was more like kind of blowing like down the tree line. So it wasn't like, it wasn't necessarily in my favor. It wasn't necessarily in his favor. But I just cl clapped those antlers together as loud as I could, just like you see like Gordon Whittington do it in Texas, you know, just staging the biggest giant buck fight that that's ever been. And I'm thinking like, you know, <laughs> when I think back, it's like, I'm like, he could probably see me, you know, like, and, uh, you know, I'm just like, just nailing those things together. And sure enough, man, this deer turns, you just must've caught him, you know, just doing a dumb thing in the right mood or whatever, but here he comes and he's coming Wind totally not in his favor. doesn't circle downwind at all. just comes a beeline right to my tree and I shoot right over him. So I don't want to say that, that, that stuff happens a lot. It doesn't happen a lot, but you know, they, they do, do, do dumb things. And if you just kind of, you, you can get it done just simply by being out there sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's probably the dumbest thing I've seen a mature buck do. So after that experience, how many big bucks did you rattle at before you just threw those <laughs> things away? Oh man, it, it ruined me for years because that totally, uh, made me think like, that's all I needed to do. I mean, I was a rattling fool for a few years and you know, it took probably a dozen or so bucks to see him just to kind of turn tail and run to think about, to, to make me realize like, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to work every time. You know, and then you start, you know, you start reading different things about hunting pressured deer and it's like leaving the calls at home or calling a little more subtle and you just, you know, trial and error, you know, what works, what doesn't. And you start to kind of fine tune uh, that calling strategy because it, it certainly can be a strategy. But Tony, real quick, man, before, before we hop off, like, I think this is worth mentioning, um, you know, real quick and I'll make it fast. We, we talk about the importance of like, of, of shooting and being good with your weapon. Um, one thing that I do think that really helps me and might set me apart from say like the average guy. Um, and I know you, I know you feel the same way about this is, is being absolutely proficient with your weapon. And I think back about these shots, you know, that I get on these hunts out of state at home, very rarely, very rarely am I getting the perfect broad yard, a broadside shot at, at 20 yards with a deer standing there and I'm flat footed and everything. The form is, is, is ideal. Very rarely does that happen. It happens every once in a while. 
but a lot of my shots are happening at an extreme fast pace. Um, I'm, I'm sliding my arrow between, you know, uh, two branches from two different trees and there's, there's an inch space to get through, or there's a little hole the size of a, a volleyball to get through, or I'm leaning way out in my saddle on the weak side. And, you know, my form is horrendous and, you know, the deer is about to walk out of the shooting lane. Um, another one, you know, happens often is, is, you know, I have something covering the vitals, say at 20 yards and the deer standing at 40 and you got to know your, your weapon and know that the trajectory of the arrow is going to, is going to cast right over that obstruction and land right in the vitals, uh, are out West. Like I, all my, my last shots have been, you know, sitting down on knees, my muley that I shot last year was a, a 60 yard shot, which is, a, you know, a poke. And I was in a, a crouch, like half squat position because the way that hunt unfolded is this deer was approaching and he was coming up on a ridge and then going down and then coming up and then going down. And every time he was down, I was sprinting, trying to get within bow range to cut him off. And every time he was up, I had to freeze because he could see my level. And so I had to cover, you know, you know, six, 800 yards. And then I finally got my shot opportunity just as he was about to jump onto private land that I couldn't access. And I was, I was, I had a, a branch kind of head height. I had to squat down and get that pin settled and make that shot in an instant or that animal gets away. Or my, my first buck in Michigan last year was a weak side shot in the saddle. So completely twisted the, the, the way you don't really want to shoot. And it was a 35 yard shot, just about to sh walk out of my shooting lane and hit him through both lungs. But my point is I practice, this is how I practice. I, I, I practice for muscle memory and testing and accuracy, like at the beginning, you know, during the spring and beginning of summer. And then I quickly switch to real life hunting shots, you know, on my knees, off balance, a foot up on a rock. Um, real steep off the roof, real steep in the saddle, weak side, sliding it through, you know, right next to a tree where I got to, you know, trying to hit the, the heart and I got to go shoot within an inch of the tree. And what that does is that prepares me. It gives me confidence when those shots materialize in the woods. I, I don't hesitate. Those are shots that I've made hundreds of times. And I, I made the analogy to you. It's like, it's like you don't, if you're a, if you're a runner and you're going to run a 26 mile race, um, you don't train for that 26 mile race by running five miles or 10 miles and then expect to perform optimally on race day at 26 miles. No, you run 26 miles or you run 30. And if you're trying to win, you're running, you know, 30 miles plus for time. And, and so when you run that 26 mile, it's a breeze. And that's a big thing. I think I pull off and I take a lot of shots that other people um, either don't have confidence in or it would be extremely low odds because they haven't put themselves in that situation enough in practice. So I'm not telling people to go out and, and wing shots, these, these low percentage shots. But no, practice these hard shots because those are the ones I get. Those are the ones where I'm just slipping it through that, that most people think would be a high risk shot to me. It's not, if I can see the spot and I have my pin and I have my bow back, 
I can hit that spot. It doesn't matter what's around me. It doesn't matter what's in front of me. If the trajectory is going to carry it over, it doesn't matter anything. It's still a point of aim and me executing the shot. It doesn't matter what else is around there, but you have to put yourself in that situation and, and, and practice those shots so that when they do come, it's not your first rodeo. It's something you've done. It's smooth. It's, it's, it's seamless. There's no worry. There's no hesitation. There's no anticipation. It's just, boom, there's my shot. Okay. It's going to happen quick. I got to execute quicker. Boom. There it is. And it's automatic. And I think that sets uh, my success apart from some, because I know a lot of good hunters out there, tons, like, you know, some hunters that are, are probably much better than I am. And every year they tell me about the buck they wounded. I hit the twig. Oh, I rushed the shot and I hit him high. Um, you know, all these things. And it really is just, you're just coming unglued in the heat of that moment. So practice really, really hard shots, really challenging shots, challenge your balance, challenge your form, challenge how fast you have to get it off, shoot it right next to that tree where if you miss and you don't, you don't get it right, you're going to blow your arrow up. Um, that's what prepares you for the real life, you know, out there on public land or pressured permission land when you're trying to get a mature buck in thick cover where you can't trim a bunch and you don't have wide open food plots to shoot in. Those are the shots you're getting. And those are the shots you got to be prepared for. And you have to make it count every time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one thing, especially, you know, it's, it's different if you can really set up stands and cut shooting lanes and you're, you're sitting on field edges and food plots. And like, Mm -hmm. that's a, you know, that's a, somewhat of a different thing but most of the hunting you know like when we when we talked yesterday about this you know i was thinking like man so many of the deer that i shoot are some some level of a thread the needle shot yep you know it might not be you know like you might not be shooting like through a golf ball size hole right but it's like a a softball or something in in the cover or you know and and not crazy distances they're just normal whitetail distances but it's never like a wide open you know, like nothing between you, but in them, but air and opportunity, there's always something to think about there. And if you don't practice those and, and you don't have the experience shooting deer, I mean, this is another thing. And like, I, you know, I'm not advocating using deer as target practice, but a lot of people who aren't closers who might be good hunters, but aren't closers, they didn't go through the phase where they killed a ton of does and little bucks, or they just don't, you know, they don't have the Western animals under their belt or something. So it's like, man, you're getting one shot a year or one or two opportunities a year at something. And 50% of the time that's going to go wrong somehow, you know, they're either, you know, they're going to bust you when you draw or you're going to make a bad shot or something. And you're just not, you're not used to that execution at the moment. And mm-hmm. man, when you get to that point where you're really confident through the practice you're talking about and you get the experience, like then when you watch them walk in, you're stoked because you know, you can do it and you're not scared that you're going to screw it up. And that's a big difference because a lot of people, and they, they won't admit this, but like I went through this when I, when I went and hunted with a recurve for a few years, like the first year I shot so much, I was really confident. The second year I didn't. And I felt differently when I was out there. Like I'd see a deer coming down the trail. I'm like, I don't want them to come in because now I'm scared to take the shot because I'm not as confident. And man, you go through a season like that and it changes your perspective on what you want to like, I don't, you don't ever want to go into it that way again, because you know mm-hmm. how much it hurts you and you don't do well. And so that, that's a great lesson. That's a great way to wrap this up. Andy, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, man. I love, I love talking to you. Um, uh, thank you so much for coming on, buddy. 
Yeah, it's fun. Anytime, man. I love talking to you too. And uh, let's do it again down the road. Awesome. Thanks, man. See you, buddy. That is it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more whitetail goodness. This has been Wired to Hunt, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for a little bit more whitetail content, be sure to check out themeateater.com slash wired to see a pile of new articles each week by Mark, myself, and a whole slew of whitetail addicts. Or head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to view the weekly content we put up. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.